1: What a terrible week! Terrible yeah, week! It's
0: a fucking terrible week! It's an
2: awful week. I think that's pretty much what we could call it.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we could just
2: call it the awful week edition. Yeah. Also, the,
1: the, a terrible week specifically in Florida, right? To see the alligator. Of the yes, an alligator stole House. a cosmo. <laughs>
2: exactly. That was uh, that. My reaction when I saw that was seriously like, of course. Right.
0: Because this. Cause is, what
2: else could happen? Because this
0: is the sort of right, week like where an alligator at times. Disney World. <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: Right. An alligator at Disney World eats a two-year-old. This week, yes, of course he did. Oh, God. Yeah, it really sucks. It's terrible. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Orlando edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Uh, We are recording this podcast in our DC studios on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Obviously, you don't have to tell listeners to the podcast what a... (laughs) Rather uh, horrible week, it's been, but we're going to be here uh, trying to discuss some of the implications of these awful attacks in Orlando uh, and what the national security implications are. I'm here, of course, as always, with my friends Ben Wittis. Hello, Ben. Yo. And Susan Hennessy. Hello, Hi, Shane. Uh, Tamara is away, probably some foreign capital again, as she has wanted to do. Uh,
0: no, actually, she's in the U.S. capital, oh, okay. not the U.S capital with an o but the u.s capital with she's an around. a she's, she's around she's just at a conference today. she's at a
2: conference conferencing uh but anyway we'll we'll do our best to carry on the three of us uh okay this week uh, much of what we're going to devote to the discussion this week is to the shootings in orlando we're going to discuss how did omar mateen become a mass killer and could he have been stopped also we'll look at the politics of the orlando shooting which seemed to have something for everyone but very little clarity uh and russian hackers penetrate the democratic national committee cuz it wasn't already a busy enough week
0: right and it's it was a bad week in all respects per, even if you were uh the dnc yeah. and winning
2: and winning right the dnc had a good week politically right but it had, it had not a, so much operationally but this
0: was like actually kind of cool in that it was a bad week in the middle of for them a good week uh, but also at the same time a bad week for donald trump because the material that the Russians stole from the DNC was their op work on Donald yeah. Trump. So yeah. in one... That's sort of like a bad week for everybody. Yeah,
2: I do right. think they publish it. And we'll talk about that when we get to that segment. I would love to see what the DNC op research looks like. A sneak preview, if you will, of campaign ads for the fall.
1: Hooray! Yeah.
2: Um, okay, let's start with the events in Orlando. Um we just kind of recap a little bit of what we sort of know so far, maybe about the... Um, the investigation as it preceded these attacks, because that's probably going to be something that's most of interest to rational security listeners. So it turns out that this individual, Omar Mateen, had been um, investigated by the FBI for a period of about 10 months, beginning in May 2013, following some comments that were later found to be unsubstantiated that he made to coworkers, claiming, among other things, to be both a member of Hezbollah and to have family who were members of Al-Qaeda, which is a sort of interesting bedfellows kind of mix. Uh, FBI investigated him. Uh, He was put on a terrorist watch list. Uh, Particularly this one requires reasonable suspicion. That is the standard that you might be connected to terrorist activities or know terrorists. Um, He was surveilled physically. Uh, There was a confidential informant that was run against him, uh, and I believe those conversations were recorded. FBI director Comey said uh, there wasn't any wiretap as far as we know but basically at the end of this 10 month period the FBI decided either there's nothing to it or there's nothing here that we can, can we can move on and the case was closed um, so I guess one question I wanted to sort of throw out and maybe you know Susan maybe you're a good you've been on the other side of this kind of thing is it strikes me is that we're, there's going to be a lot of second guessing about how the FBI did this investigation and people are going to be looking for all of those missteps and missed opportunities. But one of the things that also struck me was that you could argue that this system worked exactly as it was designed to do, in so far as these rules and regulations that are put in place about watchlisting and surveilling people are meant to keep the FBI from going too far and monitoring people with no basis for doing so, um, and that that appears to have been the system that worked. I mean, Comey even said... Based on what we know now, would I have done anything, think we should have done anything differently? The answer is no. Uh, And so you're just going to have a risk that sometimes people like this are going to get through, and that's the price you pay for having a regulated law enforcement system, maybe.
1: Right. So I think um, I sort of, I wish all Americans could see what it looks like in the intelligence community the day after a a successful terrorist attack. Um, There is rigorous soul-searching and a lot of um, sort of, Uh, Emotional, uh, soul searching as well, um, you know, by a group of individuals that often feel, um, personally responsible and really ask themselves, what did, what did I miss? What did the organization miss? Um, so certainly that is going on right now. That said, I think, um, I think Comey's comments are right. And I think this goes back even to, to conversations we had post Brussels, post Paris. Um, and that is the question of built-in resiliency. Mm-hmm. That part of a resilience, resilience-minded security policy is understanding that there's no such thing as never again. Um, and constructing a system that can take a hit. Um, I think what is remarkable about sort of this particular case is um, just the breathtaking loss of life right. um, that's uh, it, you know it feels sort of cruel to say this but um, <clears throat> you know saying uh, you know we can take uh, we can take three deaths in mm-hmm. Boston we can take right sort of we can incorporate these things um, presented with just the sheer magnitude of it um, it really starts to challenge sort of our um, Especially our sort of political capacity to say the system worked; yeah. we shouldn't be making changes. Especially um,
2: when it was one person that caused this much devastation, and not a group.
1: Exactly, and I, I think um, what's sort of remarkable right now is um, is nobody quite knows where to turn, and everybody wants to respond, everybody wants to sort of um, change things. You know, it, it's really the question of um, when you have someone who you have reason to believe is connected, is interested in this kind of activity. Um, you know, the FBI has thousands of these people. I right. think they've said that there are at least 500 people that are on sort of the high-risk, high-priority list. Um, how do you figure out who is... Uh, the actual threat in that group of people? How do you um, dedicate resources? And how do you uh, decide whenever somebody isn't a threat? Because, of course, it's not possible to sort of preserve people's civil liberties while also mm-hmm. constantly sort of maintaining uh, surveillance based on a relatively low level of suspicion. Go so, ahead.
0: yeah, I, I agree with that. I also think it's, it's very possible to imagine that the specific system that the FBI has, when we say the system worked, the answer, the question is, well, what system, right? And one system is somebody, uh, shows up on the FBI's radar screen as a possible terrorist. And, um, you, their job is to figure out whether he's got any real terrorist connections. And they do 10 months of poking around and they find out that there's no substantiation for the specific allegations in front of him. First of all, that doesn't mean he's not a psycho. Right. Right. And and it really doesn't mean he doesn't really hate gay people. Um, And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have some degree of attraction to the ideology. It doesn't mean he's not violent. Um, And so then some months or a couple years go by... And, uh, those factors might become quite salient in, uh, a, you know, as whatever issues he's struggling with or dealing with become more acute and more pronounced. That doesn't, you know, so the, the specific system that the FBI has to investigate, you know, terrorist threats based on indications that they get from coworkers or you know, that system may have worked quite well. And it may have been that they ran down those leads and didn't find anything that substantiated them. That doesn't mean you're dealing with a well-balanced, wholesome individual. And, you know, sometimes the things that set people off happen after the investigation, not during it or not before it. And so what that investigation might represent, and I say might because I I really find this whole episode incredibly puzzling. Yeah. And, um, is that what they saw was an early indication that this was a very dangerous and and scary person, and there was nothing to act on at the time? And what what developed developed after the investigation? And I, you know, that's not an example. But then you have to ask the question: Okay, well, if that system worked, what system didn't work? And I do think there you have to say, well, having gone through that process of being investigated the way he did, why was it so easy for him to get an MR-15, mm-hmm. um, or an AR-15, sorry, and why, uh, and, and why, uh, and then you have the same issue that you have in a lot of these cases, which is somebody who's, you know, clearly a domestic abuser who's you know, clearly got some, you know, very serious uh, violent tendencies that are scaring co-workers and others. You know, why why is the mental health system not responding or not poised to respond to those indicators?
1: One thing that I think is sort of interesting is um, that this really places the FBI's sting operations in a rather different light. So, ordinarily, um, there's sort of this narrative that these FBI sting operations are basically the FBI quasi entrapping a bunch of people who would never be able to achieve what they plan to do, um, laying out, you know, sort of, it's a bunch of essentially innocent people and the FBI is sort of, is, um, is stirring up, uh, you know, the activity that, that, that they charge upon. This really presents it in a rather different light, right? So, if you're an FBI agent and you're trying to figure out who is, is someone a really serious threat or not? Okay, so first you do sort of the investigation, then you run the informant against them. You okay. try and see, yeah. are you inclined to do this type of stuff? And then if the person declines at that step. So I think that really puts... Um, it really uh, does put it in a different light whenever you think about, well, all those times that the FBI ran a confidential informant against somebody and they did agree to participate or they did show the inclination, um, now that you sort of, uh, there, there's a sort of a broader understanding of what exactly, uh, what avi- what are the available tools and what is the challenge of figuring out who is the person, um, honestly, I, I'm not sure I can think of a better way to figure out if someone is inclined to commit a crime versus sort of, mere bluster than giving them the opportunity to do so.
0: I think that is such an important point because you know you know, Jim Comey and company are really damned if they do and damned if they don't. Mm-hmm. So if you leave somebody alone even after you've run a CI and you know, you haven't
2: And they did run one in this yeah, case. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so <coughs> you 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 run stuff up the flagpole for ten months and then you leave the guy alone because there's actually no basis to do anything. And then he goes and kills 50 people. Everybody's asking, why didn't you do more? On the other hand, if you uh, run it up the flagpole and you supply the opportunity, as Susan says, as they often do, opportunities that may not otherwise have been there for the guy to hang himself in the criminal system. And it turns out he really wants to support ISIS. And all he needs is somebody he believes to be ISIS, who's actually working for the FBI. And he'll do it for you. And then you get him for 15 to 20 years for conspiracy and, and material support, conspiracy to commit material support then all of a sudden you've you know you've entrapped somebody who was never uh going to do anything on his own and the answer is in neither case do you know who the people who are really capable of doing something are and you're proceeding on a certain set of instincts uh that are sometimes wrong in both
2: directions well I want to talk a little bit uh, before we move on to the politics of this about Specific systems, in this case the watch list and the issue of guns, purchasing guns, and what's supposed to happen in a situation like this, and how it is that somebody who had been investigated by the FBI could buy this weapon. And Noting at the outset that even when people are on watch lists, they can't be stopped from buying these guns, one question has come up. Um, since he was no longer on the watch list when he bought the gun, And whenever you buy a gun from a federally licensed firearms dealer, there's a criminal background check that is run with the FBI, and that background check checks the watch list. So, of course, he wasn't on it when it checked, so there was no indication. And again, even if he had been on it, it's not clear that the gun owner would have not sold him the gun. But it's raised the question of whether or not there should be a new kind of system or a tweak to that process of checking whereby the agents who had initially gone and interviewed him and surveilled him would be alerted to the fact that even though he's not still on the watch list, he's now trying to buy an AR-15. Personally, I mean, that strikes me as perhaps a reasonable thing to do, insofar as I'm pretty sure that these guys who were investigating him, I'm guessing, did not come away from the experience thinking, this has all been a very big misunderstanding, and this guy is totally balanced and just said some stupid things to coworkers and that if he had been buying an AR-15, a weapon with a notorious history, would have probably at the very least shown up on his door and said, hey, just curious, why'd you buy the gun? And Omar could have told them to screw off, and I don't have to talk to you. Um, Or perhaps it would have been an intervention that rattled him uh, and made him think that the FBI was on to him. It just seems like this is, and I get that, I mean, I understand, you know, to gun owners out there who are going to see this as an encroaching step for permanently registering people, you know, who have been on a watch list, who are no longer on it, and trying to tie them to guns. I get the civil liberties implications of this. Once you're no longer on a watch list, shouldn't you be off the watch list permanently? But I just wonder if there's not a way for certain kinds of transactions, for there always to be at least some record that the FBI once looked at you, and at least send an alert on that.
1: So look, I, I think that this... Um... You know, I'll be sort of candid about my like personal orientation here up front because it's relevant to to how people view these things, and that's that I don't care if anybody can have an AR fifteen and uh, or an AK fifteen, and uh, uh, if somebody wrongfully is excluded from buying a semi-automatic weapon, I, my heart's not broken. Um, that said, um, I think that what's sort of at stake here is this question of um, the laws are uh, sort of uh, rules and laws and policies are supposed to apply evenly across all different types of, of activities and all different types of people, right? And so um, I think what's challenging here is the notion that, yeah, the whole system is premised on the idea that yeah, uh, whenever you come to the attention of authorities, they're supposed to, uh, investigate, see if they can substantiate it. And if they can't substantiate it, that, uh, you know, that you're supposed to be allowed to live your life sort of, uh, on equal footing with all other people. Um, so I think what is, uh, uh you know, and the watch lists are sort of, um, uh, I don't know, sort of a mid-range, yeah, they, they uh, response that to idea, that. Right. They? So, so yeah. they do challenge it. Um, I think that what ends up being um, a difficult question, and a question, honestly, that's put towards Democrats right now that are seeing an opportunity to move on gun control, is, uh, you know, for example, um, the NRA is now backing the notion of a 72-hour waiting period and notifying the N- uh, the, N- uh, the FBI. That's actually the same position they had back in December. They're sort of touting it as if it's a big change of heart. It's it's not. Um uh, what's interesting is that they're supporting that position for terrorists, but not for example, domestic abusers. Right. Um and so I do think it's sort of um when whenever whenever we're really being honest about what the difference is between terrorists and domestic abusers, or, you know, sort of the um <clears throat> the makeup of who those groups tend to look like, um, there is a racial component to this. And so the question is whether or not um, the Democrats are willing to essentially capitalize on a moment of racism um, or an instinct towards racism to get some kind of concession to move the ball at least a little bit, or whether or not they use this as an opportunity to point out um, the inconsistencies of that position um, and the ways in which uh, uh perhaps Omar Mateen should have been flagged as a terrorist, perhaps he should have been flagged as a domestic abuser, uh, maybe there's 10, perhaps he should have been flagged as mentally ill. There are 10 metrics, there, there yeah. are lots and lots of reasons why this individual shouldn't have gotten a gun. Why is the NRA uh, willing to give 72 hours but give something only on one of those metrics and not the other? I, I just think it's going to be a difficult question. Well,
0: I think I think there's a potential answer to that question other than racism which is the body counts associated with terrorism versus domestic violence now you know from most people do not go get an AR-15 in order to commit an act of domestic violence um, and so I think you know there's something to be said for the idea that when a would-be terrorist uh, wants to get a gun That's a threat to a very large number of people, whereas when a would-be domestic violence uh, perpetrator wants to get a gun, that's usually a threat to that person's immediate loved ones or family. That's not an argument against what you're saying. It is an argument that this, the, the possible scale of the damage may be in a different place, and and look, this guy was both.
1: But right, forward. although of course, in the aggregate, far more people are people, killed right, by yeah. domestic right, violence right, right. than than by an actual. So the thing I would
2: seem to argue in watchlisting the domestic abusers. But
1: but but so
0: so, so well, look, I mean, domestic. I, I think if you have a domestic abuse, uh, violation. Uh, Or a a restraining order—that is one of the criteria in which you're supposed to be flagged and not sold a gun. There's also
2: no indication, I think, in Mateen's background that his now ex-wife, who's alleging the abuse, ever reported it. Right. So it wouldn't have shown up if she hadn't reported it. Right.
0: Look, and and so one of the one of the questions that I have in this case, as well as a lot of the mass shootings, that you know we inevitably spend a lot of time talking about guns after one of these things because they're the weapon of choice but i think for somebody who wants to do mass violence like this um, these are the people who are most motivated and are going to be least restrained by uh you know by firearms laws of one sort or another and you know and so to me there's a pretty good argument that the policy that you just described, Shane, which is don't try to decide who gets a gun because you're never going to guess right. But do give law enforcement a a heads up. You know, if somebody who they've been worried about in the past, you know, about a certain type of crime is about to get, you know, a heavy-duty piece of armor, uh, you know, that's something that, that I suspect the field office would have wanted to know about.
2: And, in fact, the Deputy Attorney General was giving a press briefing a couple of days ago, and she said, yes, in retrospect, that is certainly something we would like to know about. And the uh, reporters asked her, said, well, do you think you could change, essentially, could you change the system such that it did alert agents, um, even if the person was no longer on the watch list, that someone who had been on it was trying to buy this kind of a weapon? And she said that's something that they would give a, her words, thoughtful look, at doing, and by the way, was not sure that there was any legislative impediment to doing so, that this may be something that actually justice could, just in the FBI, could tweak the system and start requiring just it. Just
0: be a, be a computer
2: programming <clears throat> change. Yeah, which will undoubtedly ignite a gigantic debate, but I mean, it'd be kind of hard to argue that, had the agents not known that he had bought an AR-15 that they, you know, I imagine they would have gone well, to pay him a visit. <laughs>
1: it is an interesting use case because, of course, um, the the check on sort of executive assertions of authority is somebody sues them and, and it's yeah. an attempt to have it invalidated on constitutional or other grounds. Um, if you find uh, a use case or a set of facts like excluding terrorists from, or or like uh, alerting people who previously went on the watch case, for which no one is willing to make the challenge in court, um, that's actually a sort of effective way for the federal government to uh, enact reforms that they might not have been able to along other metrics.
0: I mean, the other possibility is just to have a, you know, a category of weapons. We're not going to restrict your ability to buy them. But if you go buy an AR-15, the dealer is going to notify the FBI. You know, I, you know, one possibility and they could say, wow, you know, uh, we know this guy or or, Susan Hennessey's bought an AR-15. Good. I hope she has some good target practice with it. You know, she's not on our radar screen. That's a different, you know, but, let the FBI decide who it's interesting to them to know has just bought one of these
1: things. Right. And the other thing that sort of lays on top of this and, and sort of segues to the notion of what the political reaction to this is, is um, the difficulty, especially on this particular set of facts, and even understanding the motivation. There's sort of a credible case that it's an act of terrorism. There's a credible case that it's a pure hate crime. There is potentially evidence that uh, Omar Martin was himself gay, and this was sort of a, a like a self-loathing hate crime. So it, you know, it really speaks to sort of um, what are the tools based on particular types of motivations, and and that they can fail um, in circumstances where uh, that construct is challenged. Yeah. Um, I think that's what makes uh, sort of ISIS uh, a game changer um, because they have, uh, in some sense, weaponized a pathos that already exists in the United States or pathogen that already exists in the United States of. Angry men that want to commit violence for lots of different reasons, and they've given them a sort of a call to arms, and, and whenever you have a lot of, whenever you have, um, operative selected targets, or, uh, targets, you're gonna end up with, with mixed motivations, yeah. right? Syed Farouk chose his workplace, where he had interpersonal conflicts with people. Omar Mateen chose a gay bar. Yeah. Um, you Which he had a,
2: a, reportedly been at several times, therefore we'd
1: know the layout. Right. Um, so th- I think this is, um, we are likely to see uh, more and more challenging cases. And somewhat ironically, because uh, the perpetrators tend to uh, die in the course of the crime, it's unlikely that we're going to see courts making determinations of how exactly we categorize these things under the law, because nobody ever ends up getting charged with anything.
2: So uh, let's talk about the politics of this. Ben, there's sort of, there's a long list of groups that have found some justification for their positions or some affirmation for their positions um, from this shooting. Give us a sense of just you know kind of who has claimed this for their their various causes and campaigns. Well, so you know my
0: my my mom is a mathematical statistician, and she once uh, uh, scoffed to me in dismissing the entire field of clinical psychology. You can't take it seriously. All of the data prove all of the hypotheses. <laughs> and I kept thinking about that in the days since, you know, Sunday, um, when one group after another, uh, was convinced that, that this guy's actions prove them right. You know, and so to the gay community, quite understandably, this is, you know, anti-LGBT violence to the Latino community it's anti-Latino violence and specifically anti—you know, something anti-Puerto Rican. More recently it's become a kind of uh, argued that it's a sort of self-inflicted hate crime as Susan and you just described. Uh, to the people who are animated by guns it shows uh, by there being too many guns it shows that we're too armed as a society. To the Second Amendment people it shows that we're insufficiently armed as a society um to uh uh some of the anti surveillance people it shows that the FBI has too much data and they don't know what to do with it all so they're missing the key targets um and to uh lots of people it's about uh the danger of immigrants and uh to Donald Trump it's about how dangerous islam is and um and you know it's i, I haven't seen anybody who's tweeted, uh, this shows I was wrong about some of my <laughs> basic premises, like not one person. And I don't know like what his motivations were, but I'm pretty sure they weren't to validate any of the above groups, you know, sense of, of, of uh worldview. And, I, and I guess I'm, I was chatting with one of my children last night about, about this and Uh, he asked me, well, what do you think it is? And I, like, first of all, honestly don't know. Um, but secondly, I'm, I've been flirting with the idea that what this stuff really is, these mass shootings, is violence that's found a methodology and that looks for an ideology. So that if you're, if you're just a paranoid schizophrenic uh... then it's newtown or colorado right if you have some attraction to um the isis or al-qaeda ideology then you've you flip out kill a bunch of people in the name of isis or uh... al-qaeda uh... like san bernardino or or the Texas, uh, uh, Fort Hood or, uh, or, or this, maybe. Uh, if you're a, um, it, you know, if you're, have some attraction to white supremacy, you, uh, then it's Charleston. Mm-hmm. But really, it's a violent act in search of an ex, you know, it's in search of a justification. And what's actually driving it is attraction to the violent act. And in that, it really reminds me of political assassinations that, you know, uh, John Hinckley sees taxi driver and gets fixated. I've got to save Jodie Foster by killing the president, right? And it's not, there's not an ideology behind right. that. There's just a, a a crazy person's entrancement with a, a, a mode of violence. And somehow we have... Uh, Taught a bunch of violent, crazy people who may, maybe used to, they would have start fixating on, you know, I gotta kill this person, this senator, this congressman, this president. Uh, and now they think th- th- what's imprinted on them is I can get the highest power weapons at my disposal and kill as many people as possible.
2: said, that, 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 that feels, right to me in general, right? I like this idea of it's violence in search of a methodology that then looks for the justification because I mean there's something about the way that he called in from the club and said, I'm doing this for ISIS. Oh yeah, it's ISIS. And I know the the brothers and yeah, just throw everything else in there. That even I mean, even his claims purportedly when he said he was a member of Hezbollah and he had family members in Al Qaeda, this seems to be somebody who doesn't even have a very sophisticated understanding of what all these groups are. And it's just sort of going, yeah, terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And despite the fact that his father is a very sort of pro-Taliban, Afghan nationalist, hates Pakistan, I'm not sure that that is, you know, ergo means that his son becomes a, you know, a jihadist or something. This just seems like somebody who had a hell of a lot of issues and a very big violent streak. And maybe sort of in the last moment, I mean, I'm just imagining this, but I could see sort of like doing this as a way of sort of further terrifying and trying to confuse people and lashing out. Or maybe he did find some sort of strength in, you know, in the ISIS message and felt empowered and was somehow just sort of, you know, plucked that one string that was ready to go in him and is what set him off. And this is why I mean I hesitate frankly to call it, you know, Islamic terrorism. I'm not sure that it was.
1: Right, I mean, and and this becomes, uh, this becomes really challenging to the legal framework as well and to the investigatory framework, which is of course sets particular resources and expertise based on Perceived motivation that's not just being nuts, right? I mean, there's some group of FBI agents that work on trying to find people who are just nuts. Um, but that's a relatively limited, uh, group of people with, with a sort of a different tool set, um, than, than the JTTF and sort of the, the, you know, the counterterrorism forces. Um, you know, ISIS has clearly capitalized on this. I think that their, um, their release after the Paris attacks was entitled something like, kill them where you find them, right? And they've, they've said that the way that you, uh, the way that you undertake this attack is, uh, you know, you publicly pledge your allegiance, uh, ahead of time in a public way. And, and they've sort of provided a roadmap for yeah. essentially freelancing, right? It's, a, it's a franchise system of terrorism, one that, um, previous terror groups like Al Qaeda were not, um, uh, did not embrace, um, it, it, to the extent ISIS has. So the question then becomes, um, how do you respond? Do you take the bait? Do you say, well, you said the magic word ISIS, and so we are going to, uh, develop a policy response. We're gonna have, we're gonna develop a legal response based on, taking you at your word? Um, or do you start to ignore people and say, well, you say you're ISIS, but we don't think you're ISIS. We think you're just some nut job. I
0: mean, what one interesting question here is uh, if you start eliminating the variables, where's the point at which uh, you believe, if you eliminate that variable, he wouldn't have killed 50 people. Mm. So if you say, okay, I personally don't believe he was inspired by ISIS. I think he got there, started killing people, started talking to the cops, and then threw in ISIS. But it doesn't sound... It seems to me like if ISIS hadn't existed, I still think this guy goes and shoots something up.
2: Yeah, and maybe he says, you know, I I did this for bin Laden. Right. Who knows?
0: But, But there's some... But I think you can control for ISIS and still get a mass shooting here. Yeah. Now, that separates me from Donald Trump, but... Oh, well. Um, <laughs> that's
1: the one that's place. That's the one thing. <laughs> that you and Donald
0: Trump now, so here's a harder question. Can you control for homophobia and still have a mass killing here? Like, if you say, okay, he does not enter a gay club that he may have gone to before. He enters... There's no gay club in his... Uh, is, is this person... Uh, uh, an angry, violent general, in a general sense, enough to have gone into a a different non gay nightclub and shot fifty people, or is it something you know or is the nature of his violence really animated yeah. by that i 'm pretty sure that i that it just emotionally and intellectually that I can control for the latino thing um, you know it was it happened to be Latin night that night. But I don't think that's why and it was he was there. Florida, and it was in South Florida, Ro- and it was in South Florida, right? But I think there are a lot of Latinos who don't believe yeah. that, and I'm certainly not, you know, not. I have much more trouble controlling for the gay thing. I, I I look at this and uh something about something about his his character, his self-loathing, seems to me to suggest that there was a big component. But another possibility is that he's not really different from the Newtown killer or the um or the Colorado killer. He's just a violent nutcase mm-hmm. and these are and the rest is just the scripts that he latched onto. Yeah.
1: Right. And 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 in some ways how um individual communities that find violent actors in their midst respond. I mean, one of the things that um is sort of I think it's one of the reasons why, not just in terms of the death hole, but this feels sort of particularly raw, especially for people who have, you know, family members, loved ones, um, who are LGBT, is um, the way in which it, um, this particular attack capitalized on some of the um, more welcoming aspects of that culture, right? So, yeah. um So gay bars could respond now by verifying or excluding or being suspicious of people that they hadn't seen before suspicious of people that didn't openly identify or right um they uh appear to have not done that i mean really sort of one of the more um moving responses has been sort of a community saying we are not you know our community is an open community and we are not going to respond to sort of hate with hate Mm -hmm. um but you know that uh that as we sort of put um, potential target groups into different buckets, right, um, places where violent actors might be in your midst, um, you know, schools, mosques, right, all the kind of identified places, and we see how they respond, metal detectors, self-reporting, FBI infiltration, right, that it's that some, as each community, you know, tragically interacts with these sorts of individuals, that there's going to have to be in terms of controlling for things like homophobia, yeah. it's a community police. Well, and
0: one, one of the questions that I've had about this, you know, our, our colleague Jonathan Rausch wrote a number of years ago a very famous article called Pink Pistols, which uh, spawned gay shooting clubs all over the country, you know, arguing that, you know, the gay community needs to A, arm and B, train in firearms, and which is not culturally where it has historically been um but i think it's an interesting question if you're if you believe that this is uh a very deep expression of homophobia rather than a you know violence that found a script uh that wouldn't be a totally irrational response to
2: it i just think there's also i mean to kind of wrap this up there's Omar Mateen, as he's been described as the guy who goes into the bar and gets drunk and complains about his strict father and sort of seems like a loner and everyone thinks he's closeted, that's a type. Like, like we have seen in gay bars that guy time and time again. I could take you guys three blocks from here and you'd find one tonight. And what generally happens is people kind of recognize that guy as the sort of, you know, keep your distance from him. And he's sort of marked. You know, the difference in this case, and that's a protective mechanism. That's sort of like, in a way, it is almost like a herd kind of protecting and sort of stay away from him. And he's creepy. He's a creep, right? Mm-hmm. The difference here is that he then showed up one night, you know, with a Glock 9mm and an AR-15. And you can't protect against that. Right. There's just nothing that you can do short of, I suppose, try to keep him from getting the guns. But it, it these things do, I guess what I mean to say is like there is some element of that sort of mutual watching out and kind of neighborhood policing that goes on. Certainly, in that community, in large part because you know you have had historically people coming into the bars and pretending like there's you know that they belong there and then being the crap out of people. Um, so there's there's a familiarity with this type and this pattern of violence. It's just that this there's no way to defend against somebody who's that heavily armed,
1: right? And sort of Unless before, Jonathan's there packing. Right. I mean, bringing it back to sort of you know the, like the the more kind of core national security equities. There's also a question of whether or not. We're giving ISIS a free pass, right? Are we giving them all kinds of publicity and um, and credit for uh, you know and sort of an outsized role in our thinking? Because as soon as somebody says the word ISIS, we attribute it to their sort of competency and then uh, and then further invest our resources sort of in that. You know, is it, the better, smarter, more effective policy response to respond to this guy as frankly pathetic and you know, having nothing to do with these organizations and, and like just some psycho who killed a bunch of people and, um, and sort of minimize their individual importance. Um, we know that there's a tremendous copycat effect. There's a tremendous sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of trans, you know, that it transmits to other people and, and to Ben's point about sort of violent impulses in search of, um, uh, an ideology that, that maybe if we, maybe if, that does seem right to me and if it is right maybe the, re- the correct response is to make sure that whoever else is out there right now with the same instinct that whenever they look at sort of the the response and the coverage to this nothing about the way people respond to this is attractive to them I, I don't I don't know how you control for sort of um, people not being terrorized but that has to right. obviously play some kind of role
2: um, okay, so, uh, there was other news this week. There uh, was. A lot of other news. <laughs>
1: Let's
2: talk about a little bit of it real quick. Uh, so Russian hackers got into the Democratic National Committee, uh, databases and stole, I'm sure among other things, but most notably, the DNC's opposition file on Donald Trump. Okay,
0: I am so for this. <laughs> okay. I, I'm for this at every level you can be for it. I, I think if Russian hackers want to target U.S. entities, first of all, this is non-classified. They're not, they're no, like, high-value trade secrets. And if the DNC wants to collect dirt on Donald Trump, that seems to me fine. And if the Russian government wants to steal it and use it in any way they see fit, that seems great. I'm just for
2: this. You're gonna <laughs> join ben up with them. <laughs> and the hackers had a great name, too. Cozy Bear.
1: So I don't think that that they self-assigned that name. So, so no sort of to put down a marker before we get into the um, if you know the Russians did this, I am completely skeptical about the claim that this was the Russians. So um, this attribution is coming from CrowdStrike, not from the U.S. government. The U.S. government, whenever they make attribution, for example, in the case of the uh, attributing the OPM uh, or the Sony attacks to North Korea, um, or OPM attacks to to China, sort of more um, with more caveating, um, they do that based on a uh, set of information that is significantly deeper than what's known as tactics, techniques, and procedures. Cool. Well, whoever did it? I'm still this, this is important though. Oh, right. So this is so this is really um it's really interesting the sort of CrowdStrike went forward with the story kind of at um apparently with the permission of the DNC and yeah. really said, you know, we can attribute this uh, essentially if you read what it was based on kind of activity that looks similar to to activity that had been attributed to Russians in twenty fourteen. Right. So I am um, a little bit holding my um I'm I'm a little bit skeptical, um sort of for two reasons. One, um, because the US government has not backed this attribution, although um back in may clapper did say that uh they had seen evidence Mm -hmm. that the campaigns were being targeted so it's possible that they sort of um the ic was the thing that uh, you know, sort of said, hey, we the Russians are in somebody's system, everybody go look. So well, and,
2: and CrossFit does have, being staffed largely by former law enforcement and intelligence officials, does have, you know, people they call and talk to about this stuff.
1: Sure. So I, I, there's not necessarily, um, it, it's possible, it's just that the case sort of hasn't been made. Um The second point, the second sort of thing that um, strikes me more as a PR move than sort of um, uh, firm attribution is um, uh, stating that they were all expelled Uh, over this, over the course of a weekend. Um, If it was Russian actors, um, Russians are, Uh, tremendously sophisticated, stealthy sort of, um, actors in this space. They really have a a reputation for, um, hiding rather well. Um, and so, uh, certainly the U.S. government, I, I could not imagine a member of the U.S. government after sort of, um, detecting Russian infiltration saying, we got them all guys. We're good.
2: What this is, is a somewhat rather clever, um, uh, counterintelligence move in order to send a message to the Russians to make it think that the Democrats think that they're safe, and then to see what they might actually be able to maybe it's, monitor within the network now. Maybe
0: it's a move to make Trump feel like he's safe.
2: Well, so this is, the timing of this whole thing is very, very yeah, interesting, it's very right? weird. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, I was also have to say, um, you know, cr- look, CrowdStrike has has done these kinds of reports before, which they then partner with, and other companies have too, which they then partner with the media outlet, in this case, Alan Nakashima at The Post, and say, let us kind of tell you the story, and then, you know, oftentimes a reporter will kind of do their due diligence and whatever. Um, but uh, I was just struck by the number of people who were on the record. I mean, the thing almost read like, you know, it had been like just statements from the company. CrowdStrike said that the DNC
1: gave them permission. It
2: was kind of, I was sort of struck by that, and I and I thought to myself like, well, what Why? But isn't I mean, it a great
0: story from the DNC's point
2: of view?
1: Kind of. I mean, it certainly uh, throws Trump a little th- off.
2: Exactly. Right? And it's I okay mean, to say you're hacked, right? I mean, everyone expects you're going to get hacked. I you know? mean,
0: it means. And they're not the people who should generally be... And they said like, no
2: donor information was right, taken. I love exactly. how they put that exactly. up front. <laughs> so so they're, they're... Can we protect that stuff but not the, the yeah, op file. So, so it
0: allowed that. them to say we have a very large amount of, of op research on yeah, Trump. Trump, Donald Trump. And now it's in the hands of the Russians. <laughs> and um I don't think they take a big hit for it, but I think if you're... Um, they come off as the victims. Yeah. Um, but it also throws everybody a little bit back on their heels, and now, uh, you know, Trump has to run against not just Barack Obama and not just Hillary Clinton, but also against the FSB
1: and potentially his best best bud, Vladimir Putin. Which, which okay, this doing it wrong. wrong. Yeah. Which is
2: why this was very interesting. Is that I think the narrative generally on Trump and the Russians has been that there is something. Uh, talk about cozy bears that there's been something <laughs> cozy between the two of them you've got uh, mutual admiration expressed between putin and trump you have advisors and people who worked for trump who have ties to the russian government including you know michael flynn we've talked about right. on this on, on the show before. and you have putin
0: who still has not responded to my uh God damn
2: no He's too busy hacking Debbie he's, Wasserman Schultz He's too email.
0: busy hacking Debbie Wasserman Schultz to meet me in single combat.
2: But so this is, the, but then it raises the question, like, so why would the, why would they want this? Now if we're, now we're getting into sort of like more, if we were to spin the, even the, the, the fictional spy story out of this. The obvious reason would be, of course, that Donald Trump is not so much of a known quantity politically, and they want to see what else, you know, that, what they can find about him. But I just wonder, I mean, if you're the Russians, and you really want to get dirt on a politician, might you be doing that to try and pressure him to do certain things. Yeah, I think I think the logic I mean,
0: in all seriousness, the logical the real reason they do this is because there's some chance that he might get elected. Right. And having uh the benefit of all the opposition research that the Democrats have done on him for purposes of later engagement with him is something you would want to do and Particularly if you suspect, as I think a reasonable intelligence agency would, that there's probably a lot of weird stuff in that guy's past, um, that's potential leverage in a lot of interactions with him.:
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben.: My what you object
0: the class? lesson is the book. Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. It's a dark cover, too. Yeah, it is a dark cover by are Fred fi- Kaplan.
2: those clouds or are those your fingerprints? Uh, they're right. my
0: fingerprints. Oh, okay. um, so uh, I am interviewing Fred Kaplan at tonight's Hoover Book Soiree, and I just finished reading uh, this book, which uh, reminds me of a certain uh, other book on the subject of Ooh. cyber war by uh, some guy... I, don't know. I can't remember his name. Uh, it's got, got some, got some punctuation in the title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what was it, a slash? A, oh, at war. At war, yeah. Um, by so, the
1: brilliant Shane Harris.
0: By the brilliant I Shane Harris. Mean. Uh, it covers some of the same, sh- same ground as, as your book. Um, such a nice way of saying plagiarism. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> kidding. It is definitely Just kidding, not Fred. plagiarized. It's it's interesting, it's more bureaucratic in its oh. history. Uh, it's, it's kind of partly uh, about the development of cyber war, but it's partly about the development of the, the, the government bureaucratic response, both on the offensive and defensive side. Uh, and it's much less operational than, uh, your book was. That is, it doesn't have these sort of deep dives in particular operations and their effects. Uh, one one interesting thing about it is just how far back it goes, and it really does sort of try to go back to the beginning of the internet. Yes. Um, so it's a very interesting complement uh, to Shane's book, um, and I commend it to uh, to to readers and uh, to listeners, and particularly those who cannot uh, come to the book soiree this
2: evening.
1: Or won't. Shane Harris. I, you know, <laughs> Every I, had, I wanted
2: to say on the record, this was to be my first Cougar book soiree. I was going to be there. I was excited to talk to Fred. And no. And no, you know, but, you know, guess what happened? Some bigger things happened this week, Shane you guys. Shane, it's too
1: important. Yeah. I got to
2: go missing. back to work after this. <laughs> Susan, what's your object lesson? Um,
1: my object lesson is um, the onion at its finest. A little oh. levity in a dark week. Thank uh, they The headline is, FBI discontinues surveillance of Muslim Americans after completing 15-year study of beautiful culture. <laughs> it is, is the onion at its best. Um, so this, this is quoting, uh, James Comey. and we've always known Islam as one of the world's great religions, but it wasn't until we recruited a network of 15,000 informants and infiltrated mosques all over the country that we came to understand just how magnificent and fascinating it truly is, said FBI director James Comey, who noted that agents gained valuable and eye-opening understanding of Islam while also learning a lot about themselves and their own faith in the process. Us after entering Muslim places of worship to collect as much information as they could on the intriguing personal beliefs of the religious <laughs> followers, um, it's very, very long and just gets better and better. So I would recommend it um, to everybody as uh, you know, An the antidote Onion, maybe to this week. the antidote as to uh, to some of the political discourse we've had yeah. this week. Yeah, um, pretty good stuff, Onion keep it up
2: God bless uh, and that brings us to the end of the show thanks for listening Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions you can find archives of our past shows at Spaghetti on the Wall dot com you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security thanks for your comments uh, and your questions we will try to answer some more of those maybe next week we should do, we should do a, live, a live session next week we should week. do a live session of listener questions I'd next be up week. for that yeah for real we'll do that uh, the podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell our music was performed this week by Ben Wittes and the Cozy. Bears. I'd, I'd buy that record. Oh, right. okay. that's like a children's album. I think it's
0: Debbie Wasserman Insults and the Cozy. Week. Ooh, that's even <laughs> yeah. better. How about just Debbie and the Cozy? Debbie bears? and the
2: Cozy Bears. <laughs> oh, I like it. Nah. That's way But I was thinking more of you because you were gonna go like and join up with them. Oh yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a fanboy. You're just exactly, he's an oh, admirer. You're a fan. A groupie. Of a band. You're a fan of Debbie and Nicozi. I've them. been listening to them since 2012 when they had the state department. Before
0: they were cool. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, of course. No, thank you to Sophia Yan yeah, as always for our music. I don't think she's hacking anybody, but... You You never know. know. She's got varied
1: interests. She's got
2: good cover for it. She sure does. She sure does. Keep an eye on her, Debbie. On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.